when I first started thinking about Billy Tipton, I think my first reaction was the kind of fantasy of what kind of a star they might have been, you know, if only they weren't held back by not being able to present publicly and claim this identity. But there's a lot about Billy Tipton that we really just don't know, and even more that in some ways is fundamentally unknowable. That's music journalist Allison McCabe talking about jazz pianist Billy Tipton. One of the ways that current music culture and fandom really operates now is, you know, when we excavate these heroes and lost masterpieces, we naturally think about, oh, what could have been, or this, the, and, and we look at these things for sometimes this easy framework of this person's been erased out of music history for reasons of either their identity or the opportunities that weren't properly afforded to them. But in a lot of ways, Billy Tipton's story resists that and resists so many of these categorizations and these what-ifs and presents us with something that requires that we really come to this with nuance and curiosity. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that when you work with somebody like Billy Tipton, it was in really trying to understand like how courageous this person was, you know, that even though they were confined in their choices in some way, they, they actually were able to go quite far with that. I think his story is still something that is important to share and has something in there for people today to understand not just identity in the past, but identity as we experience it currently. Hi, I'm Jessica Hopper. And from KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Billy Tipton wasn't a star or a virtuoso. From the 1930s until the late 50s, he was a working-class journeyman musician touring small clubs all over America. He performed on variety shows and recorded two albums for a no-name record label. Then, in 1958, Tipton walked away from his life as a musician. He settled down, started a family in the suburbs outside Spokane, Washington. And for the next three decades, that was the story of his life. Then, in 1989, Billy Tipton's death made national headlines. This is Imagining Billy Tipton from Allison McCabe. Stick around. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. A quick note before we begin. This episode includes reenactments of interviews and scenes from Billy Tipton's life. So first of all, we're going to sneak right over here beside Billy Tipton. And uh, Billy, what, uh, what business was it that you did? Well, it was more or less monkey business, you know. Well, monkey of, business. Yeah, monkey business. Kind of silly business there. When Billy Tipton arrived in Spokane in 1958, an old friend hooked him up with a gig as a talent booking agent. He spent nights playing piano at a bar called Allen's Tin Pan Alley. There, Billy met the woman who'd become his fifth wife, a burlesque dancer named Kitty Kelly, also known as the Irish Venus. Together, Billy and Kitty adopted three young sons, and over the next two decades, Billy finally settled into the family life he'd always wanted. He volunteered as a scoutmaster, took camping trips with his boys, 
and recorded corny Christmas greetings, like this one for his mother-in-law in 1974. Merry Christmas, Grandma. This is coming to you from the living room of your former home in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> oh, boy, if you could see this mess here, Grandma. We're sitting over here by your chair. Everybody's trying to get their face in the microphone at once. It's a happy Tipton family here. They were happy, but only for a time. The Tipton sons became rebellious teens. Kitty was hot-tempered. Billy was permissive. The family fell apart, and the boys went to live with Billy in a trailer park on the outskirts of town. As the years passed, Billy's fortunes and health declined. He suffered from arthritis, emphysema, and peptic ulcers. He had avoided doctors all his life, but collapsed at the age of 74. Billy's youngest son, William, called for an ambulance. When the paramedic opened Billy's pajamas to resuscitate him, he turned to William and asked something very surprising. Did your father ever have a sex change? In fact, there had been no sex change. Billy was anatomically female and had been so since birth. His sons didn't know this. Neither did his old bandmates, and neither did Kitty, or so she said at the time. After Billy was pronounced dead at the hospital, Kitty tried to arrange for a cremation, but the coroner leaked the autopsy results to the media. Major newspapers picked up the story, and soon so did the tabloids and TV talk shows. He was great on piano. He was tremendous on sax. Billy backed up Sinatra. He played with the Duke. He was a talent agent. He was a family man. Yet for all his many accomplishments, Billy Tipton will probably best be remembered for his ability to act. Because you see, Billy Tipton was actually a woman a jazzy gender bender who for nearly 60 years turned the entire world into a stage while composing for herself a brand new life as Mr. Billy Tipton. But this version of Billy's life isn't exactly true. He was never on his way to becoming a jazz legend. He didn't play with the greats. And he may not have been a woman, despite having a female body. So what do we know about Billy Tipton? As it turns out, very little. Billy didn't keep a diary. He didn't leave behind letters or papers or private correspondence. And so we're left with only clues. That in a mix of interpretation and conjecture. Most of what we know comes from a book called Suits Me, The Double Life of Billy Tipton, written by Diane Wood Middlebrook in 1998. It remains the most in-depth look at Billy's life. As a scholar, Middlebrook's work is rigorous, but she admits that it was sometimes necessary for her to, quote, substitute imagination for the absent documentation. And she takes her own liberties. She uses only female pronouns to describe Billy and stands by the idea that Billy was impersonating a man. Here she is explaining Billy's motives in a 2004 TV interview. It's with the gay and lesbian news magazine In the Life. She was going to go audition for a job, and in order to get it, she was going to put on men's clothes. She put on a man's jacket, slicked her hair back, went off, auditioned for the job, got the job, went on the road, came home with money in her pocket. And from that day on, they said, she never looked back. She saw that this was the way that she was going to be able to get what she wanted, which was work in a band. Although Middlebrook passed away in 2007, her book is still a touchstone for some who are looking to understand Billy. But the public conversation around gender, sexuality, and performance has evolved since then, 
And along with it, so has our understanding of Billy. It was incredibly researched and terrible on, <laughs> on the, the representation of uh, the sort of take of why Billy lived as a man. Silas Howard is a film and television director. His current work includes the Peabody award-winning TV drama Pose. That show features the largest cast of transgender actors in a series, as well as the largest recurring cast of LGBTQ actors. In 2002, Howard came across Middlebrook's biography, which he says he loved, but also found infuriating. It was very clear to me that it wasn't understanding Billy the way I understood Billy. In a lot of ways, Billy Tipton's life story resists an easy understanding. So, let's take it from the top. Years before Billy ever picked up an instrument, he was called Dorothy Lucille Tipton, born in Oklahoma City in 1914 and raised as a girl. Dorothy showed early promise as a musician, picking up piano, violin, and saxophone. Around age 17, she began calling herself Tippy and dressing in men's clothing from time to time. Two teenage portraits of Dorothy show the transition into becoming Billy, while Billy's biographer, Diane Wood Biddlebrook, used these photos to suggest that Billy was simply a woman in drag, the director, Silas Howard, sees quite the opposite. There was a picture of Dorothy, Billy before Billy became Billy, in a dress, standing with this, like, bowl cut and, like, ham hock for a wrist and, like, big fist right in front of his chest in this dress. And it was, and then there was a picture of him in a suit with a hat. And he's just dashing and, like, self-possessed and totally has his swagger. And you could just see the dra- where the drag was. The drag was Billy in a dress. Still in her teens, Dorothy was already an accomplished musician, but no one seemed interested in hiring her to play in their band. For a while, she crashed with relatives in Muskogee, Oklahoma, but her cousin Eileen says she found a way to get back to music. Some way or another, she heard about a band that needed a saxophone player. And back in those days, you know, they didn't have girls travel with bands. (laughs) It just, it was frowned on. Anyway... She wasn't helpless and appealing looking like you'd expect a woman to be. So she said, well, if I can't go as a woman, maybe they'll take me as a young man. So she took a piece of old worn out sheet and wrapped it around her and pinned it real tight. And I never will forget that big safety pin we used in it. (laughs) Some way she had picked up some clothes dressed as a boy. She got this job and... Left with the band. Well, that is sort of how it happened. Dorothy moved back to Oklahoma City in late 1934. By a stroke of luck, she wound up at a boarding house where she met two influential women. One was Norma Teagarden, a talented band leader who wore men's suits and played a ferocious stride piano. The other was Non Earl Harrell, a former dance marathon star who was also gender nonconforming. Non Earl had been married to a man named Earl, and when she won all these dance marathons during the Depression, and uh, she divorced him and named herself Non Earl and took all the suits she bought him. And those were some of the suits she dressed Billy in when she helped him learn how to become Billy. Dorothy and Earl also became romantically involved. The following year, 20-year-old Dorothy was calling herself Billy. Billy sent a photograph of himself to his mother, He's wearing a pair of crisp white slacks and a double-breasted jacket. Short hair swept into a rakish pompadour. He commemorates his transition with an inscription. Your child. Graduation. Billy applied for a social security card as a man and lived as a man, both on and off stage. With a few local gigs under his belt, 
Billy set out to make a name for himself, singing in a high-pleasing tenor, which he modeled after the popular jazz musician Lionel Hampton. Here's one of the few surviving recordings of Billy performing in concert on air from the Shalimar Room in Roseburg, Oregon, in 1949. With his white dinner jacket and diamond ring, Billy exuded boyish charm. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, he toured small clubs and VFW posts in the Midwest and Wests. He performed the hits of the day, sly impersonations of stars like Jimmy Durante and Elvis Presley, and slapstick comedy routines. Silas Howard believes that Billy's stage presence was crucial to understanding him, that if you knew just how to look or listen, Billy showed you who he was. So first of all, we're going to sneak right over here beside Billy Tipton. And uh, Billy, what uh, what business was it that you did? Well, it was more or less monkey business, you know. Well, monkey of, business? Yeah, monkey business. Kind of silly business there. Oh, really? Yeah, it was really silly. Well, look, silly Billy, go on and do it, will you? <laughs> okay. My mommy told me if I'd be goody that she would buy me a rubber dolly Now don't you tell her I've got a feller Or she won't buy me No rubber dolly My mommy told me A fat big cookie And she would buy me He would play with being mistaken for a girl or singing like a young girl. And I just thought this was so interesting to play with those things that could really, really like undo his life. That coy humor extended to Billy's stage banter as well, like this one. A straight man asks Billy where he was born. Billy answers, Oklahoma. I wanted to be near my mother, but she was disappointed when I was born. The straight man asks why. Did she want a girl? No. Billy replies, She wanted a divorce. Performing gave Billy a chance to channel on stage what he couldn't express in day-to-day life. I felt like it was the music that gave him the bravery to live how he wanted to live. And it almost gave him a shot at the big time. In 1956, Billy was on tour with his trio playing a gig in Santa Barbara, California. That night, he caught the eye of a talent scout who worked for a record label from Los Angeles, Topps Records. Topps built its reputation selling knockoff singles of chart hits performed by unknown session musicians. Top signed Billy's trio and released two albums in 1957. Sweet Georgia Brown and Billy Tipton plays hi-fi on piano. The albums were unremarkable, filled with generic takes on piano standards. Records like these were sold by the yard as sweeteners to boost the sale of hi-fi turntables. The two albums combined sold about 18,000 copies. Well enough that Topps asked Billy and his trio to record four more for the label. The next year, they were offered a gig as the house band, backing Liberace and Reno for more than double their normal booking fee. But it's not clear that either of these opportunities would have catapulted Billy to fame. Or that fame was a realistic expectation. This was 1958. 
Musicians like Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis were topping the charts, and Billy was no rock and roller. He was already in his mid-40s, and arthritis had started to affect his hands. Retirement might have seemed like a graceful exit, and perhaps also a way to stay safely under the radar. That's when he moved to Spokane, settled down, and for the next 30 years became an ordinary guy. The kind of guy whose death would have been unremarkable had it not come at a particular moment in history. Well, suspects who have been charged in the recent gay bashing incident outside of Montrose Club made their first court appearance today. Last night, more than a thousand residents of the Montrose area staged a rally condemning gay bashing. When Billy died in 1989, homosexuality was still classified as an illness by the American Medical Association and the World Health Organization. The American Psychiatric Association considered, quote, transsexualism to be a mental disorder. There was still an obsession with identifying causes, from biological defects to bad parenting. At the same time, there was a rising tide of queer pride and visibility-based activism. The gay and lesbian group known as Queer Nation recognized this as National Coming Out Day. It's the day that they commemorate back to the 1987 march in Washington for gay and lesbian rights. While most media coverage of Billy's death focused on the exposure of his, quote, dark secret, making him out as a fraud or a freak, it also inspired a wave of sympathetic artistic responses, including a play, an opera, and a theatrical review. The lesbian folk singer Frank, who's played with gender in her own music, wrote this tribute in 1991. Your wife said they never knew It really was a woman they were married to Now how could that possibly be true? And a group of feminist jazz musicians founded the Billy Tipton Memorial Saxophone Quartet in his honor in 1998. I want to let you in on something. I'm queer. My gender is often misread by others. I totally get this desire to reclaim Billy. But the problem with portraying Billy as a feminist, a queer woman, or a trans man is that he never discussed his identity with anyone. And in a way, that's part of what's made our fascination with him so enduring and at times so problematic. Society made him invisible. The rules of society made it so that in order for him to exist, he had to leave no trace because he bound his chest, he bound even his, his hips sometimes, uh, even with receding from the spotlight, going to a small town, sort of reverse engineering his climb towards fame because it would have cost him you know, everything else. Because of that, I think he, people do project a lot onto him because he didn't give us the words and, and the, there's less voice representation, so there is a lot of, I think, a lot more projection. Even as non-binary, genderqueer, and transgender people achieve greater visibility, there's still a need to recognize and celebrate people from the past whose struggles can speak in some way to our own experience today. But gender studies scholar Jack Halberstam says that kind of projection is complicated. Each era has a different paradigm and different norms and different ways of understanding the body. And people make sense of themselves within those strictures. We're thinking about Billy Tipton at a very interesting time because... I don't know that young people and older people agree on the meaning of trans, and 
young people very often nowadays come out as trans at a very young age. And that just wasn't true even 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, and certainly 40 years ago. Halberstam says our understanding of others isn't just based on what we see, but how we see. What we have to do is go back, find the pieces that we can work with, and then be willing not to know what they mean. Just as Billy once did sly impersonations of stars like Elvis, the singer-songwriter Nellie Mackay has her own sly and revealing impersonation of Billy. Mackay also discovered Billy through Middlebrook's biography, and like Silas Howard, she thinks the details tell a completely different story. I think there is a, a sense of the adventure that he went on and the uh, enjoyment because it was illicit. What an amazing thing to pull off with everyone you knew your entire life. I think for all the obstacles in his way, he was a, a conjurer. In 2014, Mackay debuted A Girl Named Bill, The Life and Times of Billy Tipton. It's a cabaret show, which uses songs and vignettes from Billy's life to craft an alternative reading. She restages bits of dialogue between Billy and his exes by reversing roles with the male member of her backing band. Happy birthday, Billy. Oh, Marianne. Happy birthday. What could it... Oh, Marianne, it's beautiful. Oh, I should... I shall treasure it always. Thank you, darling. Gee, I sure hope the dogs don't need it. Sweetheart. It's not the pale moon that excites me that thrills and delights me. Oh, no. It's just the nearness of you. Mackay's reenactments offer the same winking humor as Billy's original routines. You know, I used to teach drums at the YWCA. Oh, yeah? How'd you get into the YWCA? I lied about my age. <laughs> and when she recreates Billy's impersonations of male celebrities, Mackay aims for playfulness over plausibility, just as he did. Look, ladies, I know there's a million handsome guys, but I'm a novelty. Say, once upon a time, they did the Vodeo Dome, but that was long ago. Then everybody started in the boop-boop-boop-doo. They got tired of that, you know. She says it's easy to see how Billy used his skills as a performer to express himself and survive in an intolerant society. He was mostly worried of being called out on the coasts, because people would recognize him um, for who he was. Whereas in the Midwest, he was such an oddity. You know, people just kind of saw him as an eccentric, and they didn't really mention it. Mackay closes her show with a fantasy that allows the audience to imagine what Billy's life might have been like, had he been able to appear openly without fear or shame. This must be heaven. Look at those lights. It's Steve Allen! Hello, Billy. Holy moly! Indeed, so tell us, how did you manage to pass all these years? Oh, well, I had a great love of music and a wonderful prosthetic. Mackay says she wants audiences to see that Billy didn't just imitate masculinity, but consciously stylized it on his own terms. And along the way, there were always people who loved him without compromise. I think Billy really enjoyed his life and uh, really loved the music and uh, just had a great sense of fun. 
With that in mind, I found myself circling back to one of the biggest mysteries of all, Billy's five ex-wives. The question comes up over and over. How is it that these women didn't know Billy's secret? But isn't it the case that when you're falling in love with somebody, there are all kinds of things you see but don't see? All kinds of ways that fantasy enters into attraction and desire. The women in his life were really badass, and they were, like, very queer femme to me, you know? Silas Howard is currently working on a fictionalized biopic about Billy, which includes this scene between Billy and his first wife, Non Earl. She's dressing Billy in his first suit and teaching him how to negotiate survival on the margins. Once I did a marathon in New York, and I met the most handsome woman who worked for the circus. She was a lion tamer. She was a wildcat herself. Getting in a cage with the lions, that takes guts. She said it was easy. You know those uh, chairs? They point at the lions? Yeah. That all the lions see are just the, the four points of those chair legs. They don't even see you. As long as you can distract them with something, then you're all right. There's no way to know Billy Tipton completely, but there are places where the light has been allowed to shine through to give us a glimpse of who he was. And if we're lucky, we may catch a glimpse of ourselves too. You know, he, for the way that people were so in love with him still, even after dying, he must have built something that was quite beautiful and not just sad. And I think that's what appealed to me about the story, too, is there was a lot of agency, even if the path looked like he had to compromise. I don't, I don't see it that way. He had no choice but to be Billy. Imagining Billy Tipton was produced by Allison McCabe. In our reenactments, Billy Tipton was voiced by Rhea Butcher, and Cousin Eileen was voiced by Susan Sullivan. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Paulina Velasco is our associate producer. The executive producer of this season is me, Jessica Hopper. The creator and executive producer of Lost Notes is Nick White. Our show is made with the support of KCRW's Independent Producer Project. To learn more about Billy Tipton, to see pictures and listen to more music, go to kcrw.com slash lostnotes. Please rate and review Lost Notes on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to tell the music fans in your life to subscribe. Next week on Lost Notes. In the early 1980s, two teenage siblings in London recorded an album. It brought together Pakistani diaspora and British New Wave. We tell the story behind this lost masterpiece. It just sounded incredible to us to use Western electric pop, but with Urdu lyrics. Knowing and identifying with the fact that we are Pakistani-British kids. For us, this was almost like bringing together both worlds in a creative sense. Bringing that East-West fusion of music, you know, it just started and just the ball just kept rolling. I'm Jessica Hopper. Thanks for listening.